Hey everyone, I'm Joseph Mertz, the founder of Sterning Group, and welcome to our very first Higher Purpose podcast. Higher Purpose is about value and practical takeaways. We work uh, incredibly hard to ensure that we find speakers that can give you loads of practical takeaways for upskilling and personal and professional development. The following talk is by the wonderful Elsa Pankey on the culture of the mind. But before we start, I'd like to say a major thank you to Elsa, Emma Egan, and any of the other Sterning folk who were involved. Enjoy. All right, guys. So as, uh, as noted, thank you for coming tonight. My name is Elsa Pankey. We're going to be going through this presentation tonight, and there's just a couple of housekeeping things that I'd like to shout out before we start. So the first thing is, if you have a mobile phone, please turn it off or put it on silent. I'm nothing like a ringtone to completely distract me, and then I have to go back to the start of the presentation. We could be here until breakfast, okay? So make sure our phones are turned off. The second thing um, that I would like to share with you guys is tonight, the work that we're going to be talking about, I'm going to encourage you in between snacking and, and imbibing to actually take some notes. One of the things that we know uh, as a result of neuroscience is that the human brain and technology have not advanced at quite the same rate. So consequently, if you're sitting there all day and you're typing away and you're typing away and you go home at the end of the day and somebody says, what did you do? And you go, I, I, I don't know. That's because typing this action does not build new neural pathways in your brain. It doesn't trigger your brain to remember anything. So if you think about the case of a court stenographer is going to a very salacious trial, and you can ask that court stenographer, oh, what happened today? And they'll go, I don't know. I was just taking in the information and typing it down, taking it in and typing it down. So if you want to have something stick in your brain, we'd like to encourage you to take notes. And in fact, we are going to be asking you at the end of the session to actually think about maybe an action plan. One or two things that you might want to do differently, more, better, maybe less of, and we're going to ask you to share those things. So taking some notes along the way is going to be really important. Also, too, I, I was going to not use their whiteboard because I liked everything that was on it, but I was going to say write the stuff down, but I will go ahead and use the whiteboard. I'm incredibly flexible like that. Finally, the last thing is we are going to be recording this for a podcast. So in order for me to capture your questions, I'm not actually going to be losing my mind. You're going to ask me a question, and we do encourage questions. I'm going to be repeating that question so it can actually go into the podcast broadcast. So just so you know, you can ask whatever you want, and if it's really, really silly, I'm going to look at your name tag, and I'm going to say, so, Sarah? You're asking, just so that, you know, we think it's important that you take ownership and own these things, all right? Okay, finally, the last caveat. Tonight we're going to be talking about things that are recent discoveries in neuroscience, positive psychology, and social sciences. When I do the research for these programs, I go to published academic journals. So everything that I'm going to be talking about has actually been vetted and done a peer review of. So it's not something that I read in New Idea last week. Um, so recognize that everything that we're going to be talking about is actually backed up and validated by scientific study. However, we've only been studying the human brain for about the last 15 years in deep detail with the advent of neuroscience. 
So there's lots of things that we don't know about the brain today that we could find out tomorrow. So the landscape of information continues to grow and build. So recognize that if you hear something today, 20 days from now, that number might have adjusted because we might have found something else out because a lot of people are investing in the idea of neuroscience and how it can actually drive what we're trying to do going forward. All right, so culture of the mind, how does it work? So here's what we know. Human existence has always been filled with challenges, opportunities. We are often forced to make decisions. Sometimes we make really good decisions. Sometimes we make decisions that are not so good. And we've been trying to figure out why human beings do what they do for a very, very long time. And with the advent of science, we've been actually able to consider how these things work and how things come together. One of the things that we have to come to terms with is right now, today, we are living in what's called the information age. So some of us know data scientists. We often think, oh man, I should have been a data scientist because they have all the jobs going right now. Everything's about analysis and data scientists, right? Because information is starting to become king, as we can see with what's happening with Google and, and other uh, things like Facebook. It's all about that information age. On top of that, we have other people that are recognizing that we're also experiencing what's called a VUCA world, right? So what does VUCA mean? I like acronyms. They're easy for your brain to remember, right? So VUCA stands for volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity, which means basically I always like to think of us as kind of like running around and walking into a wall and then bouncing off and then walking into a wall and bouncing off. Many of us would be experiencing this rapid rate of change that we've seen. And in fact, if you look at things exponentially in terms of information, about uh, 1986, we were taking in a certain amount of information. But when we look at where we have come from 1986 to now, we have increased the amount of information that we're taking in every day to the equivalent of about 175 newspapers a day. That's how much information is bombarding our brain on a regular basis. With all that information, we are consequently creating uh, terabytes of information. In fact, we have created 295 exabytes, which is bigger than a terabyte. We have created 295 terabytes of information. Now, these new terms are often kind of a challenge to wrap your head around. So what I'd like you to do is I'd like you just to close your eyes for a second. Promise no face painting. All right, close your eyes. I want you to visualize, if you can, every single grain of sand on planet Earth. Can you imagine how much grains, individual grains of sand, all across this planet? Great. Now multiply that by 315. That's what 295 exabytes of information looks like. Fast, huge, we almost feel overwhelmed. But here's something that will really bring it home to us. As cool as that is, and as you know, God knows everybody needs to keep every single thing that's ever come across their desk and hold it for posterity. But the reality is, is that that is less than 1% of what is held by the human DNA less than one percent all of that now if we go back to that grain of sand analogy if you were to take a grain of sand and look at it underneath a you know neutron microscope and it's a piece of brain right a piece of brain the size of a grain of sand that grain of sand is going to hold 100,000 neurons 
expect a lot in the grain, yeah? But it gets better because there's over, and let me just make sure I've got my numbers right because I always think these things are very important to get these numbers right. That works out to about 36, 360,000 connections in that grain of sand, right? One grain of sand. That's, that's what our brain is doing. So we are pretty darn complex. As big as the world is getting, as fast and as vast as, as it is, coming back down to that human level, in our, in our heads walking around right now, is something that we can't even comprehend all that's in it. We have about 86 billion neurons in our brain firing continually. In fact, we think on average 50,000 thoughts a day, on average. I don't know who it was that counted that. Um, we should give them a lollipop because that was pretty impressive. Those 50,000 thoughts fly through our brain at 471 kilometers an hour. Our brains work so fast and process information so quickly that we can actually remember something that we looked at for 13 milliseconds. That's less than a blink of an eye and our brain will record that information. So our brain is doing a tremendous amount of work for us all the time, trying to actually make things work for us, trying to actually get us through the day and then up again and start it all over again. So when you think about that in this VUCA world, if our brain's doing all this stuff and there's all this activity going on, is there a point where that activity starts to affect this? Yes, it is. Here are some of the, the shocking stats that we know as a result of living in a VUCA world. We know that chronic stress, and who here hasn't had a day of stress? Yeah? Chronic stress reduces the size of your brain. Your brain shrinks under chronic stress. It actually gets smaller. It starts paring off parts of itself because like when an animal or you are even wounded, you think about hypothermia, all of the, the goodness goes to the center and your, your limbs freeze, your brain does the same thing. It starts to contract, it focuses on those core responsibilities and the interesting things like remembering how to knit or remembering what you were supposed to pick up for dinner because I think you were supposed to pick up something. Was it your turn for All of that starts to actually fade away under this pressure of being in this VUCA kind of world. Since the Victorian age, the average IQ has dropped by 1.6 point every single decade. So that means that on average, people have gotten a little bit less clever to the tune of about 13 IQ points, between 13 and 14 IQ points on average. The one that always shocks me is that our attention span. So that's something that is often fragmented in a, in a VUCA world. We often find ourselves being torn between pillar and post, and it has had an overall effect on our brains. Our attention span in 2000 was 12 seconds. Today, it's eight seconds. Now you might go, oh yeah, well that's only four seconds, and I'm, there's a lot of stuff going on. It is, however, your average goldfish, their attention span is nine seconds. <laughs> So right now, the fish swimming in the bowl, bumping into it going, was I here? Was I here? Was I here? Actually has one second longer of cognitive awareness than we do on average in, in terms of our attention span. 
So that means that we're getting bombarded. And the good thing about positive psychology, about neuroscience, is recognizing this bombardment and then kind of throwing up some things that we can do. How can we actually cultivate this culture of our mind? How, we, how can we keep it a little bit safer? And, and what does that actually mean for us? How does that work? So we know that as we learn a lot more about the brain, we're actually having to deal with an understanding level that we haven't necessarily been at before. Before we used to think that um, we didn't understand why people had mental health issues. We thought it was maybe something that they drank, their mother dropped them on their head. All these different things would come up with reasons as to why things weren't working. But the reality is, is knowing and understanding the stress that our brains get put under, there are reactions. And what neuroscience has found is that what you think of here has a cascading effect through the rest of your body. So things that happen in our lives, marriage, divorce, moving house, losing your job. And what will happen is all of these emotions will start to surface, right? And we can see some of those things that actually we go through when we're faced with difficult situations. Now, most of you being from an HR background, you would be, uh, you would be familiar with Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Yes, yeah, we have some, some notice there. That came out in the 50s as psychologists were trying to understand what are people doing? Why are they doing what they're doing? Well, with the advent of more neuroscience research, we have a new brain-based model called the SCARF model. Now, the SCARF model stands, and once again, it's an acronym, right? So let me tell you what it stands for. SCARF stands for status, certainty, autonomy, relatedness, and fairness. This model helps us understand what happens when we're sitting in traffic and somebody, we let somebody in and we're all happy about letting them in and then they don't wave and then we curse them out. <laughs> huh? That's really what this model is explaining because scientists have found that your brain does not differentiate between emotional pain and physical pain. It registers both exactly the same. Anytime you are under threat, whether it's physical or whether it's in your mind, am I going to lose my job? You know, is, is my partner going to leave me? Oh my God, all this stuff going on? Your brain is recognizing that as if somebody was taking a hammer and bashing your toe. Your brain can't tell the difference. And every single time your brain is under threat, what happens is those cognitive abilities, what you need most to be able to make a really good decision, is compromised when you're under threat right? It can actually make people almost freeze, right? They don't know what to do. We talk about, you know, when you're, when you're pushed into a corner and, and you're under physical threat, what happens is your amygdala, and that's located at the base of the back of your brain. It's called the lizard brain. It's the oldest part of your brain. It's how we kind of all started. That lizard brain will actually re release norephedrine, which will actually make you either want to fight, so hit somebody, right? run, right, run away, or freeze on the spot. And what they're finding is, especially in the cases of emotional stress, people have a tendency first to freeze, right? They just, they stay put, they get lost, they get stuck where they are because they just don't know which way to turn. 
And this then starts to almost turn into a cycle of they don't know what to do, they feel under threat, then they don't do this and they don't do that. And people just start shrinking in, in themselves. Have you guys ever experienced that? Maybe with a friend or something like that and something happens and before you know it, they just start collapsing. It's almost like a black hole. They just, they can't really move past it, yeah? And that's because their brain is reacting because ultimately our, our primal goal is to survive. And anytime we feel under threat, we will back off so that we actually can build that safety barrier and get back to where we need to be. So when we think about this, this processing and this ability to do this, even reading the words on the screen right now is affecting your brain. Recognizing those words as negative emotions, your brain is processing it. It's putting up a little bit of a, a kind of a resistance, right? That's why we talk about, are you talking positively or are you talking negatively? And we're going to talk about self-talk later on. Just reading the words is making your brain react to it. So what we want to do is we want to change that for you, all right? So let's think about soft and fuzzy things and let's clear off that negativity off the top of your brain. Now, I'm sure some of you oftentimes feel maybe a little bit guilty when you're watching those hedgehog videos or the sloth videos or the funny videos, but the reality is that's really, really good for your brain. It helps your brain reset. It helps your brain get back to where it really wants to be. So when we think about how does this all work, and I will go to the whiteboard now, because these are bigger words, we have around nine key chemicals that affect our brain. Some of those chemicals are generated from our endocrine system. Those are our hormones. Some of the chemicals are neurotransmitters. Those are actually generated from our nervous system. The big four that we're gonna talk about tonight, because everything that we're, we're talking about can be directly related to one of these, right? We've got dopamine, which is known as the reward chemical. We've got oxytocin, right? Which is the hug chemical. We have endorphins. Now these are kind of cool. They are your body's answer to opioids. Um, your body actually produces these endorphins and they are actually stronger than your average opioid. The problem is, is that most people can't produce them on demand, but your body says, hey, we need some of that stuff, so that's what we've got. And then serotonin. So these big four actually affect how our brain works every single day and actions that we take will trigger these chemicals to be, re to be released, or worse, we don't do something and these chemicals start falling away, right? And we start to actually lose a little bit of structure there. So molecule, that's the one that when you cross the finish line, you meet your goal, you go, yeah, I feel great. Your body just got a hit of dopamine. When we think about oxy, oxytocin, well, you just saw your friend, you picked him up at the airport, you gave him a big hug, you haven't seen him in a while, and you go, man, this is great. That's oxytocin flowing through your system. It's the bonding. It's what draws us closer to people. And as I said, endorphins, well, how many here are runners? Do we have people that run and go through that pain barrier and then, or bicycle or whatever it is, and you're like, yeah, I feel, 
I feel great, I feel wonderful. That's your endorphins racing, right? So that's what we get from exercise, um, whatever it is. And then of course the serotonin. Serotonin is, is a little bit softer, it's a little bit more gentle, but it's the one that kind of glues some of the other chemicals together. It kind of is that rounding out um, kind of chemical. It makes things more, uh, what's the word I'm thinking of? They, they make those chemicals more effective than they would normally be. That's what the serotonin does. So knowing that we live in a VUCA world, we can't all move to the south coast and live in a cheese hut, right? <laughs> Just won't work, won't pay the bills, right? Um, and we can't turn things off because if we've got kids, if we've got family, we still need to be part of this. But there are steps that we can take, right? And as I mentioned earlier, we are going to ask you to come up with a couple of actions that you can take. So there might be something in this bundle that we're going to go through that you want to write down and go, yeah, I can do that. that I, could, I could do that. That's really easy. I'm hoping I'm going to get you at least one easy one in the list, all right? <laughs> so what can we do? Sleep. Now, I know that we are so busy that most of us, on average, do not get the required 7.68 hours of sleep a night, right? And that's only as adults. We know that children whose brains are still growing need a lot more sleep, and getting them up and sending them to school at 8.30 in the morning is actually cruel and unusual punishment, right? Because they need a lot more sleep than we do. But still, adults need a certain amount of sleep. In fact, uh, Ariana Huffington, who ran Huffington Post, left Huffington Post because she's now uh, on a, a message mission to get everybody to sleep more. But what's really interesting is when you don't sleep, once again, your brain starts doing synaptic pruning. Your brain requires you to sleep so it can flush toxins. Your brain uses sleep to actually solidify those memories. Your brain uses sleep time to do all these kind of housekeeping things, and if you don't let your brain sleep, your brain will take it out on you. Yeah? You will get physically clumsy the next day. Uh, any kind of alcohol or anything else like that will have a stronger effect on you. That includes things like caffeine will also have a stronger effect on you. The less sleep you get, the worse you're going to be. And your body doesn't actually work like an accountancy. Your body doesn't go, oh, well, you know, Monday to Friday, I know she only averages around, you know, six hours, but I know on Sunday, it's okay, I'll get my, my time back. It doesn't work that way, right? This is a daily cycle, and if you break that daily cycle, you're behind the eight ball. So get some sleep, and get some good sleep if you can possibly manage it, and try to do that as regularly as possible. Things like going to bed at the right time, cutting down the blue light at night, because we know that that blue light from your uh, laptops or your phones will actually keep you awake. It stimulates your brain. So no, no electronic devices, and go to bed at a reasonable period of time. That's one thing that we can do to actually help our brain survive in this world. Diet. Now, everybody knows you have to eat three three veg and, and all those good kinds of things and nutrient foods, but our brain takes up about 25% of our nutrient load, even though it weighs only 2% of our body weight. So our brain requires a lot of juice, right? It's doing a lot of stuff, so it wants a lot of juice. Um, how many people here have embarked on a low-fat diet? We got anybody here who's into that low-fat regime? 
No? That's good because what they're finding is people that stay on a low-fat diet actually are affecting their brain because you know what your brain likes? Brain likes fat. 25% of all the cholesterol in our body is in our brain. If you don't get enough omega-3, those signals that travel through your brain actually don't, don't travel. So really eating a proper diet, getting a lot of different nutrients, a lot of micronutrients, is really important in staying away from processed food and staying away from things that have a lot of salt because salt dehydrates you, right? Now, it only takes 2% of you to register being dehydrated for your brain to start slowing down and stop functioning. So you go a couple of hours, you think, yeah, I don't need anything to drink, I'm not thirsty, that's fine. Your brain's going, no, really, seriously, have something, really. Even if it's only coffee, just have something because your brain requires liquid in order to keep on going. So thinking about your diet, being a little bit more conscious and recognizing that you aren't eating well so you look great. You're eating well so you think great. It's a whole different perspective on, on what we really need to think about, yeah? Learning. Um, this is really uh, one of my, my favorite bugbears. How many people here use a GPS system to travel everywhere? Without Surrey, you couldn't find the corner store, yeah? There was a couple of years ago, I think it's been about maybe 15 now, they did a study with the cab drivers in London who drive the black taxis. As part of their, uh, I guess, the stamp of approval to drive the black cab, they would have to memorize a myriad amount of routes in order to navigate around London with no GPS. They either had to know it or they had to go home. In fact, a good majority of the people would sit for this test several times. It would take them maybe sometimes two or three years to pass this test. But what scientists did when they were following these people who were doing this is they noticed that the gray matter, the part that actually is making connections in our brain, got denser and it actually increased in size. When you constantly rely on GPSs to get you anywhere, you're actually derailing your innate sense of direction. Once again, so what is your brain doing? Well, your brain's just sniffing that bit away because you don't use it. The whole idea of learning is that every single time you learn something and you build a new neural pathway, it's almost like an electrical wire uh, between two posts, right? Now, every single time information travels back and forth on that wire, you're building what's called myelin sheathing on that wire. That's almost like the insulation. So the more insulation you have on this pathway, the more times you've actually traveled this, you're learning new things, you're expanding this, that sheathing gets thicker and thicker and thicker, right? Which means that you can process that information much better. And your brain, as we know, neuroplasticity, your brain continues to grow. You can keep on learning things until the day you die, yeah? We used to think that once you got to a certain age, yeah, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. That's a lie, yeah? That's a lie. We know that you can be 95 and jumping out of a plane. You can be 85 and learning how to play piano, right? There is nothing that actually stops you from learning except we get lazy and we stop. Okay, 
So the question from the floor has been, is there a better way that we can learn today, given that we have so many options, be they visual, be they audio, be they whatever? At the end of the day, what's important for your brain is that you are learning and you are paying attention to it. So listening to a podcast might be a really great way to learn something, but not if you're on the bus looking at your phone and kind of scrolling through all your emails while you're listening to this stuff going in. That's not going to stick, right? The other thing is that remembering that so many people are forced into this typing scenario, the easiest way to really start learning things, write things down, write things down. The, yeah. Yeah. Oh. It, it's really difficult for kids today because they're almost being forced into a non-learning situation yeah. because of the technology. But the reality is, is that your average human brain doesn't, well, for women, our brain matures around the age of 18 or 19 because we... <laughs> Some would say never, no. Uh, the, male, <laughs> the male brain matures at around the age of 25, right? That's when you see, you know, they stop doing burnouts, you know, hopefully they stop tattooing their face. Those kinds of things start dropping off at around that age of, of 25. Until then, you know, it's a little bit of a, of a kind of a Ferris wheel ride sometimes. So we know that if you want to really learn something, what you have to do is it's the attention that you give to it. There used to be, for a long time, we used to think in, especially in organizational design, that some people are visual learners, some people are kinetic learners. Just like some people thought there was left brain and right brain. All of those things are myths. Yeah, they've all been debunked now as a result of neuroscience. So there is no left brain, right brain. There is nothing that, oh, you only use 10% of your brain. No, you don't. You're using it all the time. And you're using the whole thing, right? You can't really function on just 10%. That's good, so. <laughs> I know. You are a bit of 10% working away. Yeah. Yeah, no, unfortunately, the idea that, that Einstein and the whole 10% wasn't any, no. Actually, we use the entire 100% of the brain, and there is, no, there is no sense of it. In fact, if you look at Einstein specifically, the average human brain weighs about three pounds. His brain actually weighed uh, 2.31. So his brain actually weighed less than your average brain, yet he was obviously very intelligent, but what they did is it was the neural density in his brain. His gray matter was a lot denser because he was constantly learning and building and growing that neural network in his brain. So that's, that's really how that kind of goes across. So no, it's not a 10% use. And if we can only tap into the other 90%, we would all be brilliant. Um, the news is, is that we're all pretty brilliant already and just use what you've got, yeah? So in, in response to your question, are we kind of in line with what you were looking for? So there is no easy way out of learning. It has to be done, though, in a way that's very attentive, and you have to be actually focused on it and not lose your attention in other directions. Sure you can. Yep. Yes. Mm -hmm. In the same way, that I would have thought a, a kid now who's doing a typing mm. um, would maintain that image by recording it. 
No, it doesn't. In fact, when they've actually looked at the brains of young students today who have actually been in a typing technology environment compared to somebody who actually had to learn things by rote and wrote things down and copied things through, once again, that density of their brains is a lot less in the youth. Their prefrontal cortex, the executive control part of their brain, is actually a lot less dense than people who actually do not rely on typing as their only form of information. Mm -hmm. Correct. Correct. So what is a good kind of technological bridge between typing and writing? Are the pads, those think pads that you actually have the pen? Yeah? And you write things down that way. That is kind of like your middle road. Because it's actually the actual physical act of this movement that triggers your brain to remember it. This doesn't trigger your brain the same way. Now it could be that in, I don't know, people always go, things evolve, so maybe in 10 years, 15 years, it'll be different. Human brain doesn't evolve that quickly, nor does humanity. So we'd be looking at maybe 500, 600, 700 years, and by then we'd know enough that really, why would we bother? Let's just do it the old-fashioned way, because that old-fashioned way actually is the way that works the best, if we want to hold on to it. Now that's not saying that if let's say you're, a, you know, court stenographers can do all that, but they don't retain any of that information. Because you haven't triggered your brain to tell your brain that what you're doing is important. Because what you're doing is not externalizing the learning experience. That's why when we talk about kinetic learning, some people are better when they actually do it with their hands. That actually is proven to be one of the ways that is a good way to learn is if you can actually do it with your own hands. Get in there and actually physically do it. Make your body move, but this doesn't, this doesn't trigger it. Yeah? Yes? What about speaking or writing it, I get that, because I'm pretty much a writer. Okay. Right. So you want to know if it's better to speak things out loud, well, like. So you're going to write this. Okay. Well, you've got options now. I can write it down. Yes. Or I can speak it. So what she's just saying is like blah 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 in my words, and mm. then I record that for my mm. and In the actual encoding of your brain, it still has to be triggered by the physical process of writing things down. However, for example, when I do these kinds of presentations, how I do it is I write everything out by hand, then I take everything and I type it back in, then I print it out, then I read it out loud. So by actually hearing your own words spoken out loud, it does then trigger the memory cascade. But in order to trigger that memory cascade, the memory has to be laid down. So you still need to do your foundational stuff. So once you've done your foundational stuff though, so uh, for example, before today, I think that I locked myself in a room and I read the entire presentation through about three or four times, which is why I don't necessarily have to go to my notes every five minutes because I've already heard myself say it. So I've built on that, I've built on that step ladder of learning. So that's how we do it. So speaking also changes how you think. It does, it does. Right, so it works as an enhancement to the foundation. 
So I would definitely say, yeah, anytime you want to learn something, read it out loud, say it out loud, but you start with that foundation and then you build from there. Sure. Okay. Yes. Well, if you can fit a thousand or a hundred thousand neurons on a grain of sand, and you've got eighty-six billion neurons in your brain, right? What we're talking about is that your brain won't get too big. Your brain won't get too full. But what your brain does at night is when it goes through its filing and retrieval section, when it's remembering things, it will actually put things that are not maybe as prominent or don't have the same emotional kind of highlighters on it into a different filing system. So that's why you can go, oh, I used to know that person's name. What was that person's name? How do you remember it? You start visualizing them. You might think about the last time you saw them. You put them in a situation, and then your brain goes, oh, I think where you're going, I'll, I'll go and retrieve it. So what happens is it's not that your, your density actually will be recognized in the way that you actually retrieve your memories. Yeah, basically, basically. Yes? Um, I just wanted to know how the brain yeah, it's kind of gross. They take it out of your head, they slice it open, yeah? Um, and they actually put it under uh, the, uh, the, the, the really fancy microscopes. <laughs> I retrieved that, right, electron microscopes. Actually, they're go they've gone beyond that. It's down to an atomic level. So, and that's what they're actually looking at. So they bring these things up under the screen, and, and there are slide pictures of them, and you can see the ones that actually are gappy and the ones that are actually you know, damaged. Mm -hmm. You can look at areas now of the brain with MRIs, and that's what they're doing. A lot of the, the work that positive psychology has done is relying on looking at MRIs because you can see which parts of the brain light up, which is firing, how it's firing, and things like that. It's also the speed of the firing. So the more dense your brain is, the quicker the speed goes. When you've got gaps in between, things don't go as quickly. So the greater the density, the greater processing speed of your brain because you've packed in everything and it can just bounce off of each other and have multiple connections. Yeah. Any other questions? This is good, I'm liking this. All right. So gratitude. Gratitude has a profound effect on a human brain. It also has a profound effect on a human heart and a human soul. Once upon a time when the world was a different place, we had a very strong religious structure and everybody went to church every Saturday, Sunday, Friday night, whenever it was, and we were told to count our blessings. Count your blessings. Be grateful for what you have. And then something happened, and we stopped kind of thinking about that kind of stuff. Now, people are more inclined to think about, well, I want a new car. They've got a new car. I want a new car. I won't be happy until I get their new car. Then I'll be happy. Instead of thinking about, well, yeah, but you've got a car, and it's paid off, and it works, and it gets you to where you're going. No, no, no. It's got to be new. Otherwise, it's not going to be good. When we think about gratitude, what happens is... By simply taking a moment to reflect on what we have, it gives your brain positive reinforcement. It also results in a big dopamine dump, yeah? So that dopamine is what makes us feel like, oh, yeah, this is really good. And we have, sh and studies have shown by, oh, the last 15 years now it's been going at least, 
When you practice daily gratitude, just like daily meditation, your brain is in a healthier and a happier place, right? Now, when we talk about gratitude, sometimes, you know, you might think, oh yeah, I'm, I'm grateful. I, you know, I, I think about it, I think about it. But once again, what I'm gonna challenge you to do, one of the things that you can do to actually improve how you think about things is start keeping a gratitude journal. Now that can be a pad of paper, it can be a book, it can be whatever. Heck, if you wanna type it, go ahead, right? But what we're talking about here is taking the time every day to write down three things that you're grateful for, right? Now, when I talk about being grateful, it can be from, uh, you know, I made it to work on time. Uh, I didn't have to sit next to the, the person who, who, you know, who drives me nuts at work. Um, my child came home and did really well on their test. It doesn't have to be major things, but just oftentimes what happens in that VUCA world, that good thing goes away. How many of you can remember yesterday what was the best thing that happened to you yesterday? Got any calls on that? Anybody can remember? Think back that far? Pardon me? Oh, okay, so you had a really good meal. Food and, food and sex and gratitude actually light up the same parts of your brain. Yeah? So your brain's working well, it's remembering the food, that's a good thing. So just taking that action of writing those things down. Now, we talked about neural pathways, we talked about learning. So if you're gonna do and embark on the gratitude journal process, what I'm gonna suggest that you do is you commit to that for six to nine weeks. It takes six, between six to nine weeks to build a really strong neural pathway in your brain. And what happens is the more you are grateful, the more you will see things to be grateful for, and it starts to create almost a virtual circle of things. And when you do have that bad day, right, as we all have bad days, right, what you do is you go back into your gratitude journal and you start looking at all the wonderful things that have been happened to you, and all of a sudden you'll go, you know, Life is not that bad. Being grateful is not necessarily about saying, oh, it could be worse. I could be, you know, not have any legs and living in a slum and da 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 it's, That's not what we're talking about, about gratitude here. We're just talking about in your daily life, every single day, something wonderful happens. In fact, for most people, more than one or two things happen. Capturing those, remembering those, writing those down is a really powerful tool. There's a movement in the States about uh, maintaining gratitude and how it's important. And what they're doing in quite a few schools now and suggesting the parents do this too, especially with teenagers who are very caught up in, I need the next thing, I need those shoes, I need this, I need that, right? And, it's, and you say to them, hey, aren't you grateful you've got a roof over your house, you know, or a roof over your head and da da da. And kids are like, no, no, not until I get my Air Jordans. Without Air Jordans, my life is just not worth living. So what they're doing now, in, in America is they're suggesting that every single day when your child comes home from school, you ask them, what was the one cool thing that happened today? What was the one good thing that you're really happy for? You have them write it down on a piece of paper and you put it in a jar. And by the end of the year, whatever day you want to celebrate, it might be Christmas, it might be, you know, might be uh, Ramadan, it might be Easter, whatever is your special day, it could even be their birthday, take the jar, dump it on the table, and start having them open up all those pieces of paper and remember how cool their life is, how wonderful the things are that they have in their life. Recenter and refocus them in the now rather than constantly looking for the next step of instant gratification. Yes, sir. So I can't do a gratitude journal. Excellent. I do it every day. I write stuff on the weekends that I can 
Okay. Yeah, and, and having that point, as you said, in a very busy life that's filled with lots of stuff. I mean, who here doesn't have a busy life? Anybody here not have a busy? Okay, so the busyness almost fills in and sucks all the oxygen out of the other things, and by actually carving out that time. Now, before you started doing your gratitude journal, um, were you in the same headspace? Do you feel that there's actually been a shift in how you look at things? Okay. Yes. Yeah. Instead of being caught up constantly in the next, the next, yeah. the next. It makes you happier. Yeah, it does. It does. It re and seriously, it makes you happier. Your brain's lighting up. Every single time you're grateful for that, wasn't that great, wasn't that wonderful, and you pause and you reflect on it, your dopamine dumps into your system and your brain's like, ooh, yeah, this is a good thing, right? So think about that gratitude journal as maybe a way to kind of stepping into a, a better mindset. Self-compassion. So oftentimes we think that self-compassion is all about just, oh, give yourself a hug. But the reality is, is that we are constantly talking to ourselves. Those 50,000 thoughts a day, quite a few of those are internal thoughts. They did work about oh, in the 60s and 70s with kids in school, and they found that kids who had constant negative messaging would actually not do as well as opposed to kids who had positive messaging. It's called a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you constantly hear that you're going to be a failure and then you start to internalize that you're going to be a failure, congratulations, you've got a real good shot at being a failure. Yeah? because we're constantly reinforcing those ideas in our brain, we're building those pathways, so that if something happens that digresses from that, we have a tendency after a while to dismiss that and say that's a fluke because I know I'm really like this, right? Taking that time for self-compassion, that's when we, we kick in with the oxytocin, right? 
take a moment to be nice to yourself. If you find yourself, and we all do it, if you find yourself going, oh, geez, I'm just so stupid. How many times do we do that? Or, oh, how could I forget? Or we beat ourselves up, little, de- little things every day, chipping away at, at our, our sense of self all the time. And our brain, being a good little kind of note taker, is taking all that down and filing it away, taking it down, filing away. So what they have found is that you simply have to offset the negative at, at a rate of twice, right? So if you say to yourself, oh, man, that, I'm just so stupid, what you need to do is you need to pull back and go, well, you know, maybe I forgot to do this, but I'm really good at that, and today I've done this. So once again, self-talk to yourself and, ba- and feed back your own positive reinforcement to offset that negative reinforcement. Yes? Is that, well, I can't remember exactly, but something around when you're giving positive feedback to others, they say you should be giving four times yeah to to kind of offset so when you're so when you're giving people positive reinforcement the idea is is to basically do more than just oh yeah you're really great but why didn't you do that right yes Yes, where you've got nice, nice, and by the way, you stink. What happens is they remember that layer. Yeah, that layer. Yes, sir. And, and you think about, we were, t- we were joking before the thing started talking about adult coloring and coloring in the lines. When you're growing up and you learn to color, they say you have to color in the lines. Don't, don't color outside the lines. They color, color in the lines. Well, here's the thing. You don't have to color in the lines. It's your picture. You can make it look however you want to do that. But how often do kids get told, oh, no, just go ahead and just run with that. Just, you know, whatever, right? Oh, really? Is that like a purple zebra? Okay, fine. That's cool. Not, oh no, purple, zebras aren't purple. purple and zebras have to be black and white. We're constantly being funneled down this chute of you must do this, you have to do this, and if you don't do this, you're bad. And so what happens is we start internalizing all that, and it really starts to play havoc with our own sense of self. So be kind to yourself, right? Don't beat yourself up. Yes, sir? So when you look at people that do um, psychotherapy, oftentimes what they ask people to do is once again keep a journal and write down the things that you say to yourself. Or in your case, you could just pick up a recorder and start actually saying out loud the things that you're saying to yourself in your head. Yeah. So I guess maybe it's a matter of if you don't know that the voice is there and you don't know that you're actually talking to yourself and it's not somebody else talking to you in your head, it, it might be a matter of actually having a conversation with people and, and letting them know. Because it's self-awareness, right? It is, it is. You can't hear the voice. Hmm. Often, 
Hmm. Hmm. So if you, yeah, yeah. I think a lot of this is that you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. Chances are, if you've gotten to the point where you're starting to reflect on who you are, where you are, why you are, how you can make this better, there's going to be a crack in that self-awareness and you're, all of a sudden you're going to open up to it. But there is no set rule that says that you can't die as dumb as the day that you were born. Yeah? You can go through life and be stupid and die stupid. Die unaware. Die unresolved. There's no guarantee. And people do it all the time. Yeah? Um, we might know people right now who are just you know, living in this kind of quasi environment where they they don't go beyond the surface hmm. oftentimes yeah oftentimes so I think it's a matter of the minute that you are starting to question things and if you know somebody who's starting to question things you might be able to coach them you might be able to talk them through that and encourage them to go down that path and really be willing to actually do a little bit of self-exploration Life is not about winning the race, it's about running the race. It's about the journey, it's about getting on that thing. It's not about getting to the conclusion right away and enjoy what you're doing while you're doing it. Otherwise, don't do it, right? Life is too short, don't do it. Circles, the circle refers to our circle of friends, our family, people that are around us. There was a movie a couple of years ago, uh, and they talked about the seven separations of, of kind of connectivity with people. Everybody is connected to seven uh, to Kevin Bacon. Um, if you trace through seven lines, you can get to Kevin Bacon. Well, with the advent of technology, these are one of the things that's actually changed. When we looked at where we were at then, technology was not where it is now. So what psychologists and social scientists have realized is that your circle of influence is down to, you are connected to everybody by three, right? So a friend of a friend of a friend. That circle right there has a direct effect on your life. Well, it's in that circle of influence, right? So Kevin Bacon was connectivity. I can trace my way through to him because I know somebody who knows somebody who knows somebody, right? But in terms of actual influence on your behavior, psychologists have shown that it's a circle, the circle is only three rings wide. So one of the studies that they did, not necessarily one of my personal favorites, but one that they have done, is they've actually looked at people that uh, struggle with obesity. Yeah? People that uh, struggle with obesity, their first circle of friends will often contain people who have the same problem. But then when they actually took it out to the next circle, they found that there was a predominance of struggling with obesity in the second circle all the way out to the third circle, yeah? So when we think about who is it that we are spending time with, how are we picking our friends, who are we choosing to give time with, we need to think about their effect on us, right? As well as our effect on them, because it's a two-way thing, right? And that circle of friends that you keep can affect your attitude. That's why we have all the problems with troll bots. You know, everybody in this technology age lives in their own little bubble. 
and they read things that confirm exactly what they want to hear and they never want to be challenged and they never want to leave that and everybody lives and there's a whole other world outside of that right so when you think about your mental attitude think about some of the friends that you have are, are all of those friends positive now we're all going to have people in our lives be they family um you know hopefully not your partners but there's going to be people in our lives that might not necessarily be what we would call a rock and roll good time they might be a little bit on the negative side they might be a little bit on the pessimist side right once again it's about balancing so if you're going to spend time with a friend of yours who by the end of it you want to slit your throat yeah um you want to you know just give up shave your head and become a monk chances are what you need to do is you need to kind of like do a little bit of a body tag and then go spend time with a friend of yours or two friends of yours or three friends of yours who are the opposite side and balance and counterbalance it because unfortunately because we are so hardwired for survival we have a tendency to go towards the negative rather than the positive because we're always concerned about the threat to our survival so we will gravitate and we will absorb that negativity have any of you ever spent time with a friend or family member and they're a bit negative and you come away and you just want to hang your head and go eat a lot of chocolate yeah it, or drink a lot of wine yes so that can happen so when we think about your circle of friends make sure that the people that that you're associating with that you're going out of your way to spend your time with are people that are going to actually support what you're doing that aren't constantly undercutting you that aren't constantly kind of you know being those negative nellies or those crabby patches you know that that just make you really want to kind of pull back because you will absorb their negativity i understand that sometimes we can't get away from them so we just need to counterbalance and and do it consciously right do it consciously finally smiling well we've got one more after this but smiling i love to get to smiling so smiling is one of the coolest things that we can do and when i say smile i mean a real smile so what is a real smile a real smile is this right when you get this rictus muscle pulled back and you get these tiny little lines by the side of your eyes those are called duchenne lines now the reason that smiling is so cool is that you know our body our body is a marvelous thing when you actually stimulate there's there's an occipital uh nerve point behind here and this goes into your zygomatic muscle group when you pull this back at the same time that you're doing this you are sending a signal to your brain and your brain responds by doing a huge dopamine dump right and it gives you a little bit of endorphin it gives you a little bit of this a little bit of a cocktail in fact a really good smile one of these right they're really really you know that it's happening that's the equivalent happiness of 2000 chocolate bars it is honestly and so less calorific <laughs> so less calorific right but the thing is is we often don't want to smile in fact studies have shown and and i am not being in judgment here um but people that get botox yeah actually suffer a higher rate of depression so they look great they feel really crummy but they look great but they feel crummy because without this triggering by the by this part and this part nothing happens now the other cool thing about our our body and our brain the way that it works is our brain is not sitting there going yeah i'll see you're just smiling because it's a demo right I, i'm not giving you any good juice no it's 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 fake i know that you're just doing it because you have to do it no 
Your body has no kind of judgment in this. You pull your muscle back, you tweak your eyes because you're smiling, and your body goes, endorphins, dopamine, boom, boom, boom. So here's the thing. If you're having a really bad day, go into the bathroom, look at yourself in the mirror, crack yourself up. Yeah? Just crack yourself up because your brain will go, oh, okay, I'm smiling. Here's some good stuff. Your brain doesn't sit there and go, no, 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 it's not real. Your brain goes, oh, all the pieces came together. Now I do my bit. And by the time you've actually done that, you're actually going to feel better. The other cool thing about smiling, highly contagious. How many of you have actually had a situation where, you know, you've been doing something and all of a sudden somebody will come up to you and go, hey, how you doing? And you're like, oh, yeah, okay. I wasn't really, but now that you're smiling, I'm smiling. This is part of our human interaction. It's part of us being social creatures. So smiling is a really good way to kind of trigger that connection with other people. But every single time we do it, you're going to end up feeling better about yourself. And, and, and like it doesn't cost 2,000 you know, chocolate bars to actually do it. We can do it any time of the day, all the time, and you can just self-medicate. Uh, that's why, you know, I have days when I just need to self-medicate and you can't really drink wine at your desk, so I go into the bathroom, <laughs> you know, I do a couple of, you know, power poses and give myself a little bit of a grin. I'm laughing. I can't even get started on that. That's so good for you. So whenever you can actually have a joke, have a laugh, you had a bad day at work, don't go home and watch, you know, Schindler's List. <laughs> don't do that right? You need to watch something where, you know, the, 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 the girl gets the guy or the, the dog lives or whatever it is. Watch something uplifting, have a little bit of a giggle because it will actually lighten your load. And then finally, the last thing that I want to actually call out is the idea of helping others. Helping others makes our brain very, very happy. Not only does it light up the food center and the sex center, it lights up centers that they don't even know what it's doing now. But when you look at a brain under an MRI of somebody who's actually uh, into volunteering, they're doing a lot of stuff, their brain looks like a rainbow of joy happening all at once. And this comes down to the basic fundamental. For a long time, people talked about the selfish gene. We were all, you know, it's all about, you know, taking care of yourself and getting ahead and da-da-da-da-da. And didn't Darwin say survival of the fittest and rubber? Well, first off, Darwin never talked about survival of the fittest. That was some other guy who read his work. What Darwin actually talked about was that the most successful people are people that work in conjunction with other people, that actually help each other, that it, it, they form a society where they look after each other. Those are actually the most successful because when you think about it, if you're in a society where everybody looks after each other, you don't have you know, people lying on the street or people getting damaged or all these other kinds of things, everybody's looking after each other. That means that when you start reproducing and you're having children, those children are going to grow up in a safer environment because you don't have all the extremes happening, right? That will actually guarantee survival of the species. That is what we are wired for. We are wired for being a social creature. We are wired to actually reach out to people and helping other people, just stepping up and kind of saying, hey, what can I do? Hold open the door, right? Um, you know, help somebody you know, kind of get into, a, a, get into the bus. Help somebody with their shopping bag. It doesn't have to be a lot, but the minute that you do it, you will feel so good about yourself that there are people that actually get addicted to volunteering. 
yeah? Because it becomes such a thing for them that they actually get addicted to it. There was this one person who kept on trying to give away their organs because they had donated a kidney and they felt so good, they just wanted to keep on giving away bits of themselves, right? Because it made them feel so good. There's a reason why Bill Gates is actually giving away money today, and it's not because it's a tax thing. It's because he wants to have a lasting legacy, and every single time he saves somebody, when he finally gets the cure for malaria, that's going to be pretty big, right? Helping other people, and we can do that every single day in just little ways. It doesn't have to be something big. You don't have to donate a million dollars. You don't have to spend, you know, four hours shoveling, you know, your neighbor's backyard. Just hold open the door for somebody. It, just that little bit and you start to start to feel that buzz. Now, when you're going to help people, there's a couple of other things that I want to actually put on the table when it comes to helping people. Um, so I like this. I think it was, did you have that up on the board? No one is. Yeah. So no one is useless in this world who lightens the burdens of another. I love that. So when we get by with a little help from our friends, what does it look like? What does this empathy thing look like? Well, it's about making a connection. So empathy is moving beyond understanding uh, or, or thinking about how you're feeling or how they're feeling. It's actually taking the time to actually understand what's going on with somebody. So sympathy is when you feel for somebody. Empathy is when you feel with somebody. There's a saying that talks about walking a mile in somebody's shoes, really kind of getting into their space. Empathy is incredibly important, and it's something that we've actually been missing. And there's now an empathy initiative happening uh, across the world to start actually recognizing that we should not have to take action only after we see the body of a dead child on the beach. Shouldn't really take that for us to actually do something, right? And actually having that empathy, understanding that the people that are fleeing these countries are not fleeing because they want to have a life filled with McDonald's and Air Jordans. They actually want to have a life that means that they can actually live and their kids can live, right? So it's about taking that time and, and understanding what empathy is really trying to drive and, and really understanding that. I started on the empathy journey uh, because my niece works for the Cleveland Clinic. Now, the Cleveland Clinic is one of the premier medical institutions in America. They have the best doctors, the best equipment, the best everything, right? That's why I think one of the Kardashians had her baby at the Cleveland Clinic, right? But when the Cleveland Clinic was looking at its um, rates of recovery and comparing it to some of the public hospitals across the country, the one that they used in this case was Cook County uh, in Chicago, which is like, you know, um, shooting central. So they're constantly getting, you know, really, really bad things happening in Cook County. The people in Cook County were recovering quicker and faster than the people in the Cleveland Clinic. So what they had to do is they had to do a little bit of some soul searching. They looked at how they were actually treating patients. And what they realized is that they had started treating patients like their disease rather than the person, right? So they embarked on this big thing and she got me watching these videos. So what I'm going to suggest to you is there are two videos that you might want to follow up when you want to really kind of get your head around the idea of empathy. The first one is the one from the Cleveland Clinic. If you go onto YouTube and you type in the Cleveland Clinic and the word empathy, there will be three videos. It's the first one that pops up on YouTube that you want to watch. The other two are good, but that first one I think is the one that really kind of helps you understand what we're talking about when we talk about empathy. And the caveat is if you watch it at work, 
just be aware, you might end up crying. Yeah? Yeah. Um, we, we, did this, um, we did this at work, and I took my team into the room, and, and you know, grown men ended up crying, right? So it will definitely kind of tug at your heartstrings, but that's what empathy is all about. It's understanding what these people are going through, really kind of taking the time to really walk that mile in their shoes. The other one that's a really great video is Dr. Brené Brown, personal hero of mine. Um, she has a great video. You type in Brené Brown empathy and you'll get almost like a cartoony type of video, but clearly explains the difference between sympathy and empathy. The whole, the whole kind of juxtaposing of it is, is that empathy helps us connect to other people because you're saying to somebody, I'm here with you. Right? It's not about saying the right thing or doing the right thing. It's just about going, you aren't alone. Loneliness can actually kill you. Yeah? Once again, your body starts shutting down. Your body starts pulling back. And before you know it, we know that the body can actually trigger reactions as a result of the way that our autoimmune system works and the way our inflammation system works. So they're actually seeing that now things like loneliness can actually kill you. So empathy is about breaking through that barrier and just taking a moment and letting somebody know you're there with them, right? That's all it has to be. Because oftentimes that's all they want you to do is just know that they aren't alone, to know that they aren't struggling. The cool things they're doing in England with the School of Life, they started an empathy museum. And I love this idea. I don't know how it's going to work for me because I've got really large feet. But they've got this large container and they've got rows and rows and rows of shoes. And what you do is you go into the container and you pick a pair of shoes. You put the pair of shoes on, or maybe carry them under your arm in my case, um, and they give you a headset. And you walk around a meditation garden and listen to the story of this person while you're walking in their shoes. Yeah? Because we often don't stop and think about that. Everything that we do is always from our perspective rather than their perspective. A lot of us follow the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. But what we're talking about now going forward is the platinum rule. And the platinum rule says do unto others as they would have you do unto them. If somebody is, is looking for something, don't try to give them something else. Right? Ask them, what do you need? What do you need? What's going to work for you right here and right now? Rather than going, oh, here, take this. Maybe that's not what they need. Right? But if you stop and you ask them, what can I do for you? What can I do to help? What do you need right now? And actually deliver to that, that is where you're actually looking at that platinum rule. That's when you're really making a difference in people's lives. Yeah? My favorite saying in the world, Maya Angelou, she was a poet laureate of America. People will forget what you said. People will forget what you uh, did, but they're never going to forget how you made them feel. Let's do a little quick exercise now. I want you to close your eyes. I want you to think back to when you were in school. I want you to picture somebody who made your life difficult. Could have been your mom, could have been your coach, could have been a teacher. Picture that person. You got them? You can see them, sense that maybe? Yeah? Open up your eyes. We're going to refresh our brain here. Close your eyes again. Now I want you to think back when you were in school, somebody who made your life wonderful, that bestie who was always there for you, that teacher that encouraged you, that coach that stayed after to actually help you get better. You got that person? Yeah? All right, open up your eyes.
to remember the negative person, two and a half seconds. To remember the positive person, eight to 10 seconds. We focus on those negatives, they come back to us and they slam us every single time. So do you want to be somebody's worst memory? Because they will remember you. Or do you want to be somebody's best memory? Might take them a while, but they'll eventually remember you, right? Better that than, oh yeah, I know who that jerk was. Yeah, I can still picture them. I even know what they were wearing on the day, right? Because that threat loads in our brain. It's all about that survival thing. Listening. So the other thing that we need to do if we're looking at helping other people is we need to listen. And I mean really listen. There's a difference between hearing and listening. Hearing is what happens when the sound wave comes through your, the, the air hits your uh, ear, goes in and vibrates your eardrum. That's simply a physiological thing. We just kind of do it. We hear stuff, right? For the most part. Listening, actually you have to engage your brain, right? You have to be focused. You actually have to take that sound and interpret it and put meaning around it and then put context about it, right? I want you now, once again, let's do another exercise because it's always good to reflect on this. Close your eyes. I want you to think about the last time you felt like you were really listened to. Somebody actually took the time to really, really listen to you. Now what I want you to do is I want you to write down three words. How did that make you feel? When somebody took the time to really, really listen to you, how did that make you feel? A couple of words, three words at the most. All right, who would like to share one of their words? Relief. Relief. Wow. Appreciated. Valued. Validated. Important. Empowered. Yeah. Going back to scarf. Status. Right? You took the time to listen to me. Right? That made me feel like I am validated. Right? Now, think about when was the last time you took the time out of your day to sit and listen to somebody and give them that same experience? Maybe not today. Maybe yesterday. Maybe the day before, yesterday, all right? What happens is we get distracted. Once again, it comes back to that VUCA world. How many people here multitask? Go ahead, raise your hand. You'll, you'll feel better admitting to it, all right? Because this is when I get to say, nobody can multitask. Not women, right? Took it as a personal affront, yeah? Because women were supposed to be great at multitasking. But in fact, nobody can multitask. Your brain wasn't designed to multitask. We get parents who always say, oh, you know, my kids, they can do everything. You know, they got the television on, they got the radio on, they're doing their homework, they're doing this, they're doing that. They got it all under control. Once again, less density in their brain because your brain's not meant to multitask. How many times when you go to talk to somebody, even let's say you're talking to your significant other and they pull out their phone and they're going like this, oh yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. And how does it make you feel, right? makes you feel like they don't care, like you aren't really connecting. So if you're going to listen to somebody, get rid of the distractions, right? You want to help somebody. Sometimes how you can help somebody is by taking time out to listen because you get that relief. 
just because you know that somebody's listened to you. But that doesn't mean that you can listen and do 42 other things at the same time. You need to stop. You need to get in a quiet space. You need to be quiet, park your own stuff, and just listen and just be there for somebody. It can make sometimes the biggest difference. Suicide hotlines, perfect, perfect example, right? Those are people who they are at their, their end of their rope. What do they do? They pick up the phone, and the person on the other end of the phone is not sitting there playing basketball bingo in the background on the screen, right? That person's not sitting there you know, knitting or doing something else. That person is there in the moment with that person, giving them that connection, listening and taking the time to listen. Doesn't take a lot of effort. What it does take is, is a certain amount of commitment and a certain amount of time. Yeah, you know it works for you. What I would suggest is it works for other people. And once again, helping other people makes you feel better. You actually take the time to listen to somebody and you come away and they go, thanks, that, that really made a difference to me. How do you feel? Feel pretty good, huh? And you think, yeah, but I didn't really do much. I just kind of like sat there. I didn't really like give you my opinion or come up with an answer to all your questions. Yeah, that isn't what I wanted, but you just sat there and you listened. You stay out of judgment, right? The whole thing about empathy, you stay out of judgment. You just kind of go, okay, talk to me. I'm, I'm here to listen. That's what I'm here to do. And that can also make a really big difference, not only for the other people in your life, but also for your own headspace. It really, really makes you feel empowered, and it makes you appreciate that you are part of a bigger picture. A human. You want to solve a problem. Of course. Of so course. It's hard to sit back and just really listen without thinking about, okay, how can I make this better for you? Yeah. And what I often say to people is, imagine the last time you know you wanted to actually talk to somebody. I, I, I love my partner. He's a wonderful man. Been together for a long time. But I'll say something to him, and he's like, okay, well, well you just do this, and you do And I'm like, seriously, dude. Just, just, just back down, right? Just, just step back, back down. I don't want you to fix my problem. I just want to vent, right? And sometimes people just need to vent. Kids need to vent. It, doesn't, it isn't something that, oh, the minute you're an adult, now you need to vent. No, there are six-year-old kids that are, are struggling, right? And sometimes they just need to vent. And by you listening to them and giving them that connectivity and reinforcing that, you are making not only their brains light up, but your brain is lighting up because you're actually forming that, that intense social bond. And it's not about fixing things because sometimes things can't be fixed. Also too, sometimes you have to find your own way to fix things. And sometimes by venting and talking out loud, as, as we've talked about before, talking out loud, you can sometimes work out what it is that you want to do. But it always helps if there's somebody else in the room. Otherwise, we're all like sitting in the room talking to ourselves out loud, which is, I guess, okay, but it's not really the ideal situation, right? So thinking about that, right? Just taking the time to really, really listen. Yeah, yeah, go and talk to the, yeah, or the, didn't he talk to a basketball, the guy on the yeah. island? Yeah? yeah, Tom Hanks talked to the basketball. Right, Wilson, because he, he had to be he had to feel that connection. The most basic of all human needs is the need to understand and be understood. And the best way to understand people is just to listen to them. Stay out of stay out of judgment. Stay out of kind of going oh, you know. And if you find yourself wanting to interject, right, and you feel like you just need to throw something in there, pad a paper and a pen, write it down. Just keep listening. Write it down. Yeah. 
Yeah. And really, at the end of the day, while your opinion might be valid to them, it might not actually be what they're really needing. It does. Constantly. Yeah, constantly running in your head. I, I, I just want to, yeah. So once again, it's a wonderful thing. Write it down. Write it down. And you know that they've stopped listening because all they're doing is they're running their own response through their head. Yeah, yeah. I need to get in. I need to make my point. I'm going to look wonderful. That's not listening. That's actually kind of playing racquetball. You know, you're kind of like bouncing stuff off of each other, trying to score points. That's not what listening is about. Yeah? Any other questions? We good? All right. Now, the other part that comes in with empathy is the sense that you can actually trust somebody. Trust is something that in this day and age has been fragmented. It's something that we've kind of lost an ability to do in a lot of cases. People lie to us. People do the wrong thing. We never trust them again. They break trust, right? Trust starts pretty simply with this, standing up and taking ownership. So when we talk about listening to somebody, how do we actually engender trust? We don't want to interject. We do just want to listen. We do sit there and do what we need to do. We take ownership for I am the listener, you are the talker. My role as the listener is to listen. That's what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm taking ownership, stepping up to the plate, or because we're in Australia, stepping up to the crease as, as it works better. But really actually taking ownership and saying, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do what I say I'm going to do. You want to help somebody. You want to do what you actually keep your word, keep your promise. And if you can't keep your promise, don't make it. Right? Oftentimes, you know, people look at you and they're like, tell me that it's going to be okay, right? You want to tell me, I, I need to hear that. You need to say, well, I don't know that I can tell you that. That's not what I can tell you. But what I will tell you is I'm going to be here for you. Regardless of what happens, I'm here. We're in this together. I'm taking ownership. I'm here with you. So really understanding that importance of actually stepping up to the plate and taking ownership for things. Because who here likes blame shifters? Anybody here like people that never take ownership? So they're late, but it's never their fault. They didn't sleep in. Their alarm didn't go off or there was a solar flare, or the trains got too busy, yeah. Or what my new favorite blame shifting, and this will probably indicate who I really am, Ambien does not make you a racist. And by taking Ambien, it doesn't make you tweet horrible, nasty things to other human beings. Own it. If you're a racist, you're a racist, own it. But don't blame it on something else. Right? Take responsibility. Be, be accountable for who you are. You've made that choice. Once you've made the choice, own it. Right? And 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 in all honesty. <laughs> It's so embarrassing. Don't mention the president. It's like, don't mention the war. Yeah. Don't mention Trump. Doesn't it relate back to your really early comment about some people will just always be dumb? Like, how does it yeah. Yeah. Like, huh. I, and, 
and you know, there are, there are people that we cannot save them from themselves. You know, all we can do is strengthen ourselves, strengthen our community so that when they throw things at the wall, they aren't throwing things at a paper wall. They're trying to throw a paper airplane at a brick wall. And what happens? Falls down and you go, oh, gee, how did that work for you? Okay, got to move on, right? So that's how we actually defeat those, those naysayers, those people that are trying to undermine what we know makes sense on this planet for everybody, right? We have to be in defense of that. Rather than trying to change them, we just need to strengthen those, those borders. We need to strengthen what it is that we do and know that what we're doing is for the better because some of these people can never change. Some of these people, I think sometimes, you know, if there is a God, they put them in, uh, in our path to just kind of go, what are you going to do about that? And you're like, I'm, I'm, I'm going to just go this way. I'm good. Yeah, you know? Because they just, they make you crazy, right? So taking ownership, stepping up to the plate really builds trust. If you've lost somebody's trust, chances are you've lost their trust because you haven't done what you said you were going to do. You broke a promise. You broke faith with them. How do you do it? Well, to actually restore trust, you got to keep on doing what you say you're going to do and not drop the ball again. Because it takes a lot longer to restore trust once you've lost it. Yeah? So you got to stick with it. My idea is just try not to lose it to begin with. Take ownership. As you say you're going to do something, make it, meet your commitments. Trust is the glue of life. It's the most essential ingredient in effective communication. It's the foundational principle that holds all relationships together. Without trust, how could we do anything when you think about it? Would you, if we didn't trust each other, would any of you be willing to get behind the wheel of the car and drive next to somebody? Because you're trusting that they're going to follow the road rules, aren't you? You're trusting they know how to drive the car, right? What if you didn't have that? What would we do, right? <laughs> it's always that. Okay, so now it's over to you, right? So we've talked about a lot of things. We've put a lot of things out on the table. But unless you take the knowing into the doing, you might as well just stayed home and drank yourself quietly into the corner. So now is when we're actually going to ask you to put the pedal to the metal. So in your book, in order to carry a positive action, we must develop a positive vision. So I'd like you to take a look at the action plan that you've been given. Now on the top left-hand side of this action plan is what we call in coaching methodology the house of change. If you want to achieve your goal, whatever that goal might be, you need to make sure that the structure underneath that goal is solid. So let's just take one that, that pretty much everybody can generally relate to. So let's say your goal is to get fitter, right? You've decided that it's really important for you to, to be a little bit healthier. You really want to kind of be a little bit more, you know, maybe do a little bit more exercise. So your goal is to be fitter. You need to think about what kind of behaviors do I need to put in place to do that? Is it going for a run? Is it walking the dog? Is it joining a gym? What are the behaviors I need to do in order to support that goal? Then you come down to the emotions. Well, nobody likes getting up and running in the dark at 5.30 in the morning in the winter in Sydney. It's not fun. 
But if I get up every morning going, running in the dark, it's not fun, and I really hate it, and blah, right? What's going to happen is you're not going to achieve your goal because you're kind of shooting yourself in the foot. So what are the emotions you have to have in order to support your goal? So your emotion for getting fitter and getting up in the morning might be, you know, I don't necessarily enjoy this at the beginning, but I know at the end I always feel better. I'm going to feel good for the rest of the day by actually doing this. These are the kinds of things, you know, getting that emotion. Your thoughts. So what thoughts are you going to have in this process? Am I getting fit for somebody else? Am I getting fit to make somebody else happy? Or am I really getting fit because this is important to me? Because if it's important to me, I need to align my thoughts. I'm doing this not because I want to sacrifice fun, but because I want to actually build an advantage. I want to actually be healthier. I want to be fitter. And then finally, your environment. Oftentimes, we overlook this when we're looking to change, right? Oftentimes, we want to get fit, but we still actually have that entire box of wagon wheels on the shelf. And we know it's there, and we say we're only going to eat one at a time. But the reality is that might actually need to go to God, go to your work colleagues, you know, help, help share that around. When we think about environment, it might be a matter of the night before you go to bed, put out your running clothes. Get your shoes out so you aren't getting up in the morning stumbling around in the dark. The stuff's there. Your gear is there. So if you want to facilitate change, you need to think about getting that structure in order in order to deliver that. So what I'd like you to do now is I'd like you to think about what are some things that I might do, even if you only come away with one action, awesome. What's something that I can do more of? More listening, maybe more smiling. What can I do better, right? What can I do maybe different? In other words, maybe stop doing something because stopping is just as powerful as starting. And what maybe do I want to do less of? So I'd like you to take about three or four minutes, five minutes, depending on how are we doing for time? Uh, gone over. We've gone over, guys. My little thing beeped, but we were having so much fun. So only take about three or four minutes. Just write down one thing that you're going to do, more, better, different, or less. Thinking about by when, with who, how often, right? And then I'll ask just a couple of you just to share those actions that you're comfortable with. So now the clock is like way ticking. I can talk underwater. Mm -hmm. <laughs> How many Tim Tams are they to eat? Did you hear how learning actually makes your brain denser and makes you think faster? Smiling, 2,000 chocolate bars. Well, you know, dark chocolate does actually trigger the release of dopamine in your system. Oh, God. I think of that guy in the Monty Python thing, one little wafer. Have one teeny little wafer. Yes. All right, so we've got some, some good, um, I think, energy in the room. Who is willing to share one of their actions with us? Yes, ma'am.
Thanks. And when are you going to start all of this? Excellent. Excellent. It's always good when we action plan. Do it now because if you say, I'm going to start next week, yeah, no, you won't. Right? No, you won't. Right? So starting tomorrow. Excellent. Who else can we get to share? Come on. Mm -hmm. uh, so I want to be a better surfer, mm -hmm. so I'm taking surfing seriously this, this um, month, so something I need to do more of is surfing and swimming, so swimming was the main thing I need to do more of, what I need to do better was when I was in those moments was focus on my strokes when I was swimming, mm -hmm. breathing, mm -hmm. and aim doing burpees as well, which is like a... Burpees is jumping up on the board. Pop-ups. Yeah. Especially when you do it on the sand and you're up and you're down and you're up and you're just like, really? Seriously? Yeah. Different in eating and sleeping. So I have to change my diet and sleep better. And then less with drinking and partying. Awesome. Although partying's always fun because it makes you laugh and you smile. Yeah. I think we're just changing the mindset of what partying actually is. Oh, okay. Partying. Okay. It was when I was impacting my surfing, okay? So that's Fair enough. Fair enough. So if you know you're going to get up Saturday morning and, and actually hit the waves, drinking until five wouldn't work. Can I get anybody else to share an action? Let's make it an even three. Okay. Um, empathy, so more empathy and compassion. I've been trying to do that for years and it's something I'm not good with it. You actually are, but you think that you're not. Well, I... I want to listen more without always trying to find a solution. So I think that's something I do a lot of. Um, and less multitasking. Good. Less multitasking is a start. You need to move to no multitasking because remember, nobody can multitask. So somewhere you're cheating, something isn't being done correctly. You're putting your brain under stress. The other thing that happens when your brain gets put under a lot of stress is instead of creating gray tissue matter, it will create white tissue matter. Now, white tissue is basically this fibrous, meshy stuff that actually does nothing. It's like it just it fills your brain up with like nothing white stuff. And that happens when your brain is under stress. The quickest way to stress, multitask, because you can't do any of it well. <laughs> hmm. It can be tough. All right, guys, anything else? Any other questions, comments, concerns? Uh, how about organization? How do you. We're talking about the individual. So, how do you change culture if the culture is not set from the top? There's so much you can change, so you can change the individual. I think one of the things that we often overlook in history is that we often think that the only way that change happens is it happens from the top. But if we look at 
our history lessons and you look at things like, oh, you know, French Revolution, um, you know, American War of Independence, the emancipation of slaves, that didn't start up here. That started down here. Yeah, if you want to change an organizational culture, what you start with, start with yourself. Yeah, once you change yourself and you start building that circle around you, before you know it, your influence will start radiating out. So when I started teaching positive psychology at the Commonwealth Bank, they already thought I was crazy. Then they knew I was absolutely nuts. But here's the thing, it for a long time worked. And they would come to me and go, I don't understand, this isn't supposed to be how the way things are because we're a bank. And I'm like, no, before you were a bank, you were a person. Go back to that humanity and work out from there. And that's, I think, what I would actually ask each of you to do. Start with your own humanity, work on that, and I guarantee you're going to be able to move mountains once you actually move yourself. So thank you very much for your time.